Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast for the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPEGIN. My name is Jennifer Lee, pediatric gastroenterologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, and I am joined today by my co-host from Edmonton, Alberta, Jason Silverman. Hey, Jen. How's it going? Hey, Jason. When's this episode coming out again? In the winter? Uh, sadly, yes. Win- winter is coming, as as it always does. In Edmonton, uh, it's always depressing this time of year because it's, it's this supposed to be, you know, fall, uh, maybe just the early onset of fall. And and for those of you that have not traveled to Edmonton, Edmonton is, is a wonderful city, but it has this weird thing in the fall where um, one weekend it is still summer and it's beautiful and it's really nice. And the next weekend, all of the leaves spontaneously fall off the tree at the, the same time. Uh, so we already have trees that are like have lost half their leaves and are uh, full on in winter mode. But I'm not I'm not ready to to think about that just yet. I'm, I'm still holding on to warm weather and warm thoughts and, uh, you know, running outside and things like that. You know what? I've read this book recently or I've heard the saying about how there is no bad weather, there's just bad clothes. So there you go. (laughs) You know what, that's probably true. uh, But I would still like to hear that person's take at minus 40. which as as myself and and my fellow uh, co-hosts in the United States have learned is the same in both Celsius and Fahrenheit. Really? I don't think I knew that. <laughs> um, anyway, I am really excited about today's episode where we again get to talk med-ed with another pediatric gastroenterologist who is passionate about this area. Even better, today's guest and topic came from a suggestion by one of our listeners, Pat Reeves in Bethesda, Maryland, who asked us to discuss the topic of elevating your medical education contributions as a trainee or, you know, as a junior faculty member, and also suggested today's guest. So that's a big hint to listeners who might be interested in a particular topic or guest to keep sending us your suggestions on Twitter or by email. And of course, uh, today's episode was an even easier call to make with uh, the suggestion when it was to have my good friend, Dr. Danny Mallon, on the show. Dr. Mallon is the director of Celiac Disease Center, the co-director of the Combined Celiac Disease slash Type 1 Diabetes Clinic, associate director of the GI Fellowship Program, and director of the Student and Resident Education at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. He's also assistant professor in the University of Cincinnati Department of Pediatrics. His research interests have been in medical education, as well as improving care in celiac disease, as well as other GI condition. Of note, he was the recipient of the Naspigan Foundation Terry Lee Young Educator Award last year. We're really excited to have him join us today to talk about elevating your med ed game. And if you want to hear about the Education Award, you can also listen to Dr. B. Lee's episode, which is one of our very first ones on Bow Sounds. So on to the show. So Dr. Mellon, thank you so, so much for joining us on this episode of Bow Sounds. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Jason has been talking about you because I guess you guys are friends. You go way back. Way back. Teaching in tomorrow. Mm-hmm. San Diego, which was no bias, but it was the best one. The best one ever. And I mean, this is our first time meeting virtually. So in the future, we'll have to meet in person. So we can, you know, we're only like an hour apart. 
But anyway, so for the listeners and myself who don't know you yet, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? This is the biggest challenge, but I probably would say I am a pediatric gastroenterologist who is strongly interested in raising the bar in patient care, speaking broadly. And I think I do that uh, through medical education, quality improvement, and uh, program development, if I might, and specifically in my favorite disease to treat celiac disease. Awesome. That actually landed one sentence, I think. So uh, during the past year or so, uh, because there's been you know something going on in the background for most of us, uh, we've been asking people to enlighten us with some kind of entertainment that they've really gotten into over the last year and a half. So a book, a podcast, a TV show, movies, something that you really enjoyed that you can share with our listeners uh, looking for some escape. Uh, 100% Ted Lasso. I think previous guests may have already mentioned it, but I'm going to put my other two to 100 cents in for Ted Lasso. I'm yeah, absolutely I, loving season two right now. This is this is dating this episode, but uh, last night was the Emmys, and of course, Ted Lasso cleaned up. Well-deserved, so I think that's a, a great recommendation. I'm an episode behind, and I'm, I can't talk to friends about it because I really – I'm so eager to catch up. So we had a request from a listener, Dr. Pat Reeves, who's in Bethesda, Maryland, to invite you on as you've been helping out with the trainee-led curriculum initiative. So this really prompted the topic of getting involved in medical education or elevating your approach to medical education as a trainee. And I thought it would be great to drill into that. But first, I will say that anything we talk about today will also apply to junior faculty or even experienced faculty who may want to up what they are doing. And as we heard recently from Dr. Alan Leichner, it's never too late to go back and really learn about medical education. So maybe we can start by talking about just that, getting started. How did you get started into medical education and what informs your decision to continue to pursue it more? It's interesting. I, Looking back, it was hard for me to pinpoint really when I got started, but I think it was during residency that I moved from enjoying learning a lot to really enjoying teaching a lot and uh, had some experiences just being fascinated by the teaching and learning dyad and small groups that we were in in residency, uh, listening to expert teachers teach me and then wanting to be able to do that for my learners as a senior resident. And so I did a chief year and was motivated to do something creative uh, and new and applied it to, that was right at the time when we switched from call to shifts. And there was this whole cadre of people who had no planned learning at night. And so we created a night curriculum, which just so happened to be uh, rolled out at the same time as a, a national night curriculum here in the States. And we had a great time. And I had a great time developing it and kind of learning by mistakes, how to do curriculum development, had some great handholding along the way, and I wanted to get better at it. So I uh, got into looking at fellowships who were interested in helping me get that extra training. And so I was really interested in that. And so then got into fellowship and applied myself and, and wanted to do advanced training, didn't know what it was going to be, but ended up doing a master's in medical education, actually a master's in health professions education. And and since then, it got me some fuel the fire 
throughout and uh, applied it to multiple different types of projects. That's awesome. And it's great that it just kind of rolled organically, which I think is, I, I think that's kind of the story we've had uh, in common from a lot of our guests about how they got started in their areas of expertise. On that note about getting started again, you know, so we talked about how you got your start, but if a trainee was to approach you, and I'm sure this has happened a number of times over over your career so far, if a trainee approached you at any stage of training or even a junior faculty member and said, I, I think I'm really into medical education and I want to get into it more, what do you think are the best ways to get them involved or to tell them how to get involved? Well, my first reaction to the people who come to me and say, hey, I'm interested in medical education just like you are, uh, what can I do to get involved is I ask them a question right back and I say, what does that mean to you? What part of education do you want to get involved in? And everybody has a different answer to that because there are different ways that you can get involved in education. And a lot of people are interested in multiple ways, but I kind of break it down into three main roles. One is, do you want to be an education leader, uh, which is program director, uh, associate program director, course director, curriculum designer, like writ large? Or do you just want to be a master teacher? Do you want to be the best teacher you can be and kind of emulate your role models as teachers? Uh, or do you want to be an educational scholar? Do you want to do research? Do you want to apply things and assess them rigorously to answer more scientific questions about what works best in education? And a lot of those roles overlap a lot of different times, but I think whatever energizes them and what prompted their motivation to ask the question can be a really nice starting off point to say like, oh, well, if you're interested in being a better teacher, well, these are the resources you can get into. Um, if you want to be an education leader, if you want to do research, then these are the kinds of directions that uh, you should take. I, I think that's a really, really great way to kind of frame or, or try and direct a learner a little bit more or to gain uh, insight into, like you said, what prompted that learner's uh, inspiration in the first place. Um, but just as a total aside, I just have to say that's such a staff move to answer a question with a question. <laughs> it's masterful. It's, the, it's something you hone over years. I feel like Yoda did that on Star Wars. <laughs> Um, so I want to drill down on that a little bit more, starting with improving teaching skills. So what do you like to do and what works? Because I think we have to do this balance of time on rounds versus bedside teaching, classroom teaching. How would you teach me how to become a better teacher? Well, now you just up the stakes quite a lot. If you really want me to, no, I'm just kidding. I think learning through experience and also through kind of some of the stuff that I learned during my master's is it puts words to some of the intuitive things that we do as teachers and learners, especially now that we're constantly doing adult learning, right? This isn't school anymore. You're not teaching, you're not learning because you just want to get a good grade. You're learning because it actually matters to you. And there's different ways that people have put words to this, but it's adult learning theory that it has to include certain things. So there are these Knowles assumptions about learning, and then there's the uh, principles of andragogy, which is a terrible 
way to sound super smart about this, but it, it, some of it is intuitive where you need to engage a learner where they are and teach them things that matter to them, bring their own experiences, like what clinical things they've seen in the past and how they're going to assimilate that knowledge and compare and contrast. And it's applying those kind of principles in adult learning. So what I do is what I would teach people to be a better teacher is to use those things that energize the learner and teach them what's relevant to them. So it's getting to know your learner a little bit. Like, what do you want to be when you grow up? When you, when someone comes to your clinic and you're going to preset them, or if you're going to, they come on your rotation, uh, like me on the GI rotation, I try to spend a little bit of time asking what they want to do. And I don't only teach them the cardiology that they want to go into and how it applies to GI or the other way around. But I try to say like, this might be interesting for you as a future X and kind of hook them in and get them engaged in what I'm about to say. So there's that. There's also making sure that you have expectations. Uh, this day and age, you want to set expectations for how you're going to watch people and give them feedback about their, their own performance. And then make sure that they know that you're kind of on their team and that you're on, you're doing things in their best interest rather than the old style of kind of almost an adversarial pimping teaching style. I think if, if people know that you're on their team, they respond better to what you're teaching and they'll respond better to constructive feedback too about their own learning. I think starting on people's prior experience and meeting them where they are to take them just even one step up today and tomorrow we'll talk about the same patient. Well, let's add to that concept. And over the course of a week, you've learned five to 10 different things about that same patient. I think that's, I think that's great, great advice. So the eureka moment so that when I was learning about some of these adult learning principles was learning this phrase called the zone of proximal development or the ZPD, which is a fantastic acronym by itself. Well, I mean, it but goes the, straight to Zootopia. Can't this, yes, else. exactly. Zootopia. I, maybe I was, I think it was pre-Zootopia that I learned this. And then you, Zootopia was a little bit more enjoyable for me because of it. But the ZPD, the zone of proximal development is people are only going to learn that very next step. So if you teach them super esoteric, weedy type knowledge, they may not care. They just aren't ready for it. But if you, and if you teach them something that they learned multiple times before, then it's boring and it might repeat and re repetition is always good. But if you can push the envelope just a little bit more, then that's where people are going to learn the best and it's where it's going to stick. That's really good. And I just want to circle back to a couple of things that you had said, because you're right about that zone of proximal development um, being that important thing about I'm, I'm going to take you to where you are and then just a little bit past that, you know, because I'm going to ask you, I'm going to keep asking you questions until I get to that weak spot and then we'll work on that. Um, and I always find that when you say about setting expectations, like setting, you know, expectations about, you know, you're on their team and, uh, and that you are, aiming to teach them something to improve them in some way. I always think it's really important to avoid that pimping. And just for the rare person who might be listening to this uh, podcast, who hasn't encountered the term pimping, doesn't know what pimping is, that's kind of the derogatory term referring to a style of questioning from a more senior person to a learner, where it may be, uh, it may be the 
teacher or the preceptor's notion that they are doing teaching, but really it's all about power differential and putting someone on the spot and making them feel really awkward and sweating and uh, uncomfortable. And I always frame it with learners like, I ask a lot of questions when I'm teaching just to find out where your knowledge lies. So, um, and it's, if we get to some place that you don't know the answer, it's totally fine because that's, that's where we're going to spend a little time talking about things. So setting the expectation or setting the ground rules that you're going to uh, play by, I think is really important. And, and Danny, I know you and I have talked about this before, but that idea of labeling what you are about to do as teaching. It sounds so silly, but it's also super important. I've had trainees in the past leave rotations. I never got any teaching when we spent hours talking about the patients and what they might have and differentials and why you might do this and why you might do that. And so even something as simple as saying, okay, let's take a few minutes to do some teaching around that last patient. Just setting that signpost in the ground makes them register, oh, we're going to have some teaching now. And same thing with feedback. I'm going to give you some feedback on that last encounter. It just helps them frame. So if they say, you know, did you get any teaching or did you get any feedback? Well, yes, I remember that word being mentioned. So I must have. Yeah, there's actually a body of literature around doing just that, doing the, I love your word, signposting, where you're saying, this is teaching, this is feedback, that if you actually do that up front, you can actually increase people's recognition that they got some feedback. And it's and you're exactly right. And I think that people want to be taught. They're thirsty for teaching. And when you call it out as such, I think it actually does help. And it helps. I think it helps the just the environment uh, on the team. I'm so used to teaching on a team on rounds, like leading an inpatient team. Uh, and I think it improves the environment of like, let's do some teaching. We're in this together. I'm here for you. You're here for us. And it, I think it helps the team kind of feel that camaraderie that we're all in this together, that we're, we're not just, uh, in the hustle and bustle of doing patient care. But the reality is of all anybody who's in educational leadership and things like that is the only reason you're, they're here to do patient care is to learn patient care. We all know that every day we're at work, we're learning. And I think learners know that, uh, as faculty, as a faculty level learner, I know that I'm learning something every day. But the teaching aspect and recognizing that you're being, that you're receiving teaching, right? Signposting it, it, it does go a long way. Jason, I would highly recommend you get one tattoo on this side for teaching, one for feedback, and just be like, bang, teaching moment. <laughs> no, because then, then the trainees will hit the professionalism button on the website to say, like, he kept right. flashing his biceps at uh, me. Every... Well, you know, all the Peloton. <laughs> anyway, so um, I want to expand upon that a little bit because we talked actually two points I wanted to make. So one, I think that that point of calling out that, hey, this is teaching is very important, especially if you're doing family-centered rounds, because sometimes you might say things that are scary to patients. And so I think that bringing that up early is a really important point. And then the second thing I wanted to ask about is this concept of a chalk talk. Can you, I mean, I'm not carrying chalk with me around in patient rooms. Can you explain what that is? I feel like we've been hearing more and more about it lately. I think whiteboard talk just doesn't sound as good. The When we talk about chalk talks, when I talk about a chalk talk, I think about the impromptu teaching session that could last 30 seconds or 20 minutes where you as a teacher will use the things around you, whether it's a real whiteboard 
or chalkboard. Wouldn't that be cool if we were in a learning setting where there was a chalkboard? I think I would love it. That would be terrible. What about all the kids? You wouldn't like asthma and like eczema and all the chalk dust. No thanks. No thanks. Okay, whiteboard. The smell of the whiteboard marker is just way more appealing. So it's getting something out. Even if you're like me with a patient or in a in a in an exam room where you draw on the little paper that you roll down over the examination table and you draw a picture or if you draw a process for a patient uh, or in your in the team room and you flip over your paper list and you start drawing out a pathophysiologic process or a differential diagnosis. I think it's that impromptu teaching where you use a little bit of visual aids and it's something quick. It's a maybe it's something you have up your sleeve that you always know how you're going to run your impromptu talk on some clinical topic or it's the way that you're going to explain something but you're that signposting of teaching is that you've gotten something out to write something down to show somebody and that's how that's kind of your 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 signaling to someone that you're trying to teach them something and giving them a visual representation, perhaps. I think there's signposting. And I think there's also, it gives you a a little bit of a tool, maybe a crutch, but it's a little bit of a tool that you can say, oh, this is my prompt. I'm going to do a chalk talk on this, or let's plan a chalk talk after rounds, or this is my way of teaching this thing. And it can kind of put that, put you in teaching mode, which I think is, it helps a lot when you, something you can use as a tool to just kind of like turn it on. Um, and get in that get in that framework and signal to your learners that you're doing some teaching. So let me ask a follow up question really quickly for especially for our trainees, you know, our fellows who are now three months in or four months into their fellowship. Do you recommend that the service fellow has prepared chalk talks? Like I'm going to talk about this topic, or should they prepare something based on what they're seeing from the patients? What What do you recommend for a new learner, a new teacher? That's a great question. I I definitely encourage new fellows to build kind of a reservoir of chalk talks that they can just in a moment say, let me just do a little quick chalk talk on failure to thrive, neonatal cholestasis, uh, functional abdominal pain, that kind of thing where you just have something that it may just be a framework of understanding or approaching a clinical topic or a framework of teaching on a tr- clinical topic that they've practiced, that they are comfortable just doing on a moment so that they can either take it out and apply it during when that clinical topic comes up. You know, something like failure to thrive is going to come up every month you're on service, things like that. Or if there's a little bit of downtime, you have 10 minutes before noon conference and there's time, you just happen to finish rounding at the appropriate time. And you want to do a quick learning session and you say, let's just do a quick chalk talk on this. How about we do some teaching? And usually people are pretty, um, pretty into it. So I do recommend people build that up. And until they've built it up where they've practiced it a few times and, and try to hone it a little bit, then it's, let's just do this on the fly. Let's talk about it and have a conversation about it in a little small group and see how it goes. And then you kind of come back to it later and say, how am I going to do that better next time? No, I think that's a, I think that's a really good idea. And, and and I think there's a couple of things to add to that because I agree having those sort of in your back pocket, go to quick teaching, quick hit type of talks that you can, that you can just do because you've done them a bunch of times, especially for those high yield topics that you are, like you said, you know, failure to thrive or abdominal pain or pros and cons of using PPI in 
young kids or whatever the case may be. You have those small uh, encapsulated talks that you can pull out for things that you encounter all the time. The more you have that down, you can just like, bam, here's, I'm going to do this now. But I think it's also important to to realize, because I think a lot of people, they want to do teaching, but they're intimidated feeling like, I need a 50-minute lecture complete with high-quality PowerPoint slides to really teach a student anything. And and the reality is it doesn't take that five, 10 minutes and a whiteboard or a piece of paper or, or nothing at all as props. And you can do a lot. And then I guess the other thing is, in addition to having those back pocket banked talks, there's the idea of the one-minute preceptor model of teaching where you take a case that you've just encountered as a learning opportunity and you turn it into a teachable moment where you just, you know, get the learners to commit to something ahead of time. Uh, you know, what do you think is going on? That's their commitment. And I'm going to, I'm going to hold you to it. Like you need to, you need to make your claim. What do you think's going on? Why do you think that? So you probe for, for some additional information. You know, why do you think that? What's your rationale? What, what fits? What doesn't fit with that diagnosis that you told me? And then, you know, give them some praise for, for what was a good idea and maybe probe them a little bit on some, some um, things that they left out or some things that you would add and then teach them one like little principle or approach, uh, nugget out of, you know, that, that particular topic. And if you summarize that, then they'll be like, whoa, I just learned one thing, you know, maybe just one thing, like why the salty baby with failure to thrive, maybe you should do a sweat test, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be, like the one little nugget that you, uh, that you, you taught them. And that could be the thing that the, that medical student takes away from their pediatric rotation or their rotation on PSGI. Like I remember the day that I learned this one thing, um, and it doesn't take a 50 minute slide deck to do it. I remember when I first heard that phrase, the one minute preceptor as a thing. And then I went and looked up the article that was written by a family medicine uh, doctor and educator who wrote the article called the one minute preceptor. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, people have thought about this as a capital O one minute preceptor technique. When this was really just what my best preceptors did when I was in school and residency, and they were applying these techniques that they had learned through, you know, apprenticeship style learning as a teacher and, and, or they went and looked up how to do it the best way. And, and it just so happens that you're applying really great adult learning principles. You know, people are motivated because they're interested in, and they're only, presenting information. It's one way of you gathering up where they are as a learner, figuring out their own zone of proximal development, because if their differential diagnosis is super small. You're going to expand it just a little bit. If it's really long, then you're going to hone it just a little bit. You're able to give them really quick, just-in-time feedback about their own kind of way of thinking about a problem and being in the moment with them and teaching them and giving them that like massaging their understanding of a problem into shape is timely. It's relevant. You're going to apply it to the patient, the actual patient who's in the other room. It's super useful for all those reasons. And it's a tool that you can look up and read articles about how to do it better. But it's also just something that you probably already experienced through expert teachers. We'll put a link in the show notes 
for the original article, but but I think that's right where you um, it's one of the things where you you probably know it when you see it or you you've encountered it and you've appreciated it, but uh, maybe seeing it in print just sort of legitimizes it or or at least gives people a framework to approach it so that they know what to do. What, what was that? That was so good about that one preceptor. Maybe that was it. So I have to derail us a little bit. I know we're running along on this topic, but I think this is so important. So. I went to several seminars on how to teach and adult learning theory, and I think it's amazing. There was a workshop that I went to a few years back about gaming and kind of gamification of the teaching on rounds. And I want to bring that up because I want to hear your opinion on it, because sometimes some of what we do in medicine can be so heavy. (laughs) And I don't think teaching has to be heavy. I think teaching can be fun, but... I'm not going to lie, I don't do a lot of bets I'm teaching because I'm not very clinical. But um, what are your thoughts on gamification or gaming and teaching? That's a good question because it's something that I've actually looked into quite a lot. My research during fellowship and some of my research here in Cincinnati has been in the realm of teaching, really facilitating the learning of expert pediatricians in how to manage primary care GI problems better, specifically constipation. And we created an online curriculum. And part of it was gamification. And so we used this tool called Spaced Education. um, And it also used this electronic online platform that applies Spaced Education learning principles called QStream. And part of QStream, and any fellows listening to this should be participating in the fellows feud, which uses QStream. It gives you a score and you earn points. And that's, those are the principles of gamification is there's an incentive, there's point earning, there's progression dynamics that if you answer this many questions, you unlock the next chapter of questions, that kind of thing. Anytime you've ever played a video game, they're just maximizing your, or they're applying the psychological principles of keeping you motivated. That's the real strength of gamification, that it's a motivation tool. It keeps you engaged and it keeps you wanting to do well. If you think that people are only learning to earn points, then you've kind of stretched beyond the real intent of the gamification. It also makes it fun. And anytime you have like a positive emotion associated with your learning, it's sometimes fun. That's why we all love our trivia and Jeopardy and those kinds of things. They're fun and you want to have the right answer and it just activates that emotional response of trying to get the question right. There's real strength in that. As an aside, there's also real strength in a negative emotion where you're, you are afraid of getting it wrong. And that can be applied in Jeopardy games, but that also is probably the only, you know, silver lining to so-called pimping is that the activation, the emotional activation is there. And there's probably some added benefit to learning, but it's not very fun. And so why not make it fun instead with the other side of emotional activation, like a positive emotion? So I think there's real, there are real strengths and there's some real upsides to gamification to keep people interested and keep people having an enjoyable time while they're learning. But I think you can overdo it too when it comes to if you're only trying to earn points, it, it loses its luster. So the guy who gave this workshop, and I cannot remember the na- his name for the life of me, but he was, what he did at the beginning of Rounds, this is for general pediatrics, at the beginning of his month on with them, 
I think it was a month or two weeks. He would say, he would set like, okay, you get points for doing this. And it was, I think for the seniors, it was how many teaching points you have, or there were some points per trainee level. Whoever got the most points at the end had the chance to win a million dollars. And so then he would give them a scratch off ticket. <laughs> it was like a whole thing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the challenge is, do you remember anything that you learned that month any better than you learned on other months? idea we'll but you had a good time i mean i didn't participate and i i thought about this and and anyway seemed fun i like the bit about the positive emotion link as being something to strengthen learning because that's got to be the reason why i can probably remember verbatim just about every monty python sketch but asking me you know about some uh key mechanism behind a medication i use each and every day i may forget at the moment um so that must be how that works and you'll, and also you'll never f forget the patient where you missed something because of the emotional engagement that you had in the miss or the near miss. And it becomes a teaching point for the rest of your, you know, time as a teacher. Yeah, absolutely. No, that, that's absolutely true. Um, before we move on, um, maybe from this sort of this topic of, of improving your teaching skills or upping your teaching skills as a, as a trainee or a junior faculty, um, where would you send people if this is their path, if this is what they want to do, where, where would you direct them to learn more? Well, I think Jen just mentioned that she went to seminars. That kind of thing is available at lots of different academic medical centers. Um, and so if you're still in training, then almost certainly there's going to be something housed at the medical school or within the GME office uh, or within a faculty development office that they'll put out programming on teaching skills, on teaching and learning workshops. And you have to keep an eye out for them or you have to go seek them, but knowing where to look and those types of websites at your own institution and then if you just do some, a little bit more dooging, uh, digging, a little bit more digging on Google to find medical education workshop, medical education conference, there are local, regional, national things that you can go attend to do one-off learning sessions to advance yourself as a teacher or as an educational leader. And then you can do step ups where you can get advanced training. There's certificate programs. There's, of course, master's level education programs, things like that. But the other thing that I have told people is you can make yourself a better teacher just by asking for help and asking for feedback as a teacher. People are going to be interested in giving you feedback as a clinician as part of your training. But if you want to improve yourself as a teacher, then ask your preceptors, ask your attendings, ask your supervisor, supervising trainees even to, hey, can you watch me do this teaching session? Or can you give me some feedback at the end of this week about how I taught on rounds this week? I want to, I'm interested in getting better on that. People will respond to that and then hopefully they'll give you some good advice about what worked and what didn't work from their own experience. And that's something that I, I didn't really think of until I got into it. And it's been great. I've asked people who are like bona fide educators, but I've also asked people who are just fantastic people and friends to, you know, give me feedback on my teaching. What did you think of that lecture? I've also asked my trainees 
and medical students afterwards as I would love to have feedback on how this talk went. Um, let me know, send me an email or, or I'll make them sit there and tell me <laughs> and give me feedback right then. You got to find people who will tell it to you straight. <laughs> That's exactly right. You know, uh, Jason, we, it reminds me that there's a couple of other resources that are probably worth mentioning. I know at our institution and at the couple of other institutions where I trained, um, there are often electives for residents and medical students, like um, medical education as an elective in medical school, where you actually do some some hands-on learning about teaching and precepting and running small groups and things like that. And then there's also residents as teachers electives, there's residents as teachers curricula, depending on your program. And so I know a lot of places run that for their own learners. Uh, and when, at least for our fellows, we encourage anybody who's interested in um, furthering themselves as teachers to do these direct observations with, you know, expert educators. Okay, last question before we move on past your own personal development. Um, when should somebody think about looking at a master's? One easy answer to that is if you're interested in being an education scholar, like if you want to do research in medical education, you almost certainly need to do advanced training. Uh, and a master's is a great way to start with that. And most master's programs will have hands-on research projects where you'll have to do a project or two during your master's and you'll learn by doing. And you'll learn research methods and statistical methods and things like that. I think if you're going to do research and education, you almost have to do advanced training. Uh, you can learn some of the principles. If you're like me, you learn some of them the hard way by making a lot of mistakes. Uh, but when you get into a program that includes some mentorship, or if you do a research program with an education scholar mentor, you're going to learn um, in a hands-on way, just like our clinical research you know, training goes, just like basic science training goes. You should do it with good mentorship, uh, applying rigorous principles, and getting extra training is uh, never a bad idea if you're going to like turn yourself into a scholar uh, in that realm. I think if you're going to be an educational leader, it's becoming a little bit more the currency of the realm is to have uh, some advanced training of some sort, like if you're going to be a program director or an associate program director, things like that. I don't think it's necessary for people to have that job, but a lot of places who will start to expect that out of trainees, especially as medical education masters and health professions education masters programs are kind of becoming more popular. I think to become a masterful teacher, you're going to learn some cool stuff in an advanced training program and a master's program about teaching and understand how to frame what you're doing as teaching and applying best principles. But I think we should still expect ourselves in the old school way that we should all become the best teachers we can be. And not everybody needs to go do a master's program to do that. But if you're engaged and you really apply, you know, some motivation to becoming a better teacher, then you'll get a long way there without a master's. We'll put a plug in and, and a link in our show notes to our other episode with Dr. Alan Leichner, who talked about his experience getting a master's in medical education a little later in his career to pursue that type of work. But 
Short of doing a master's, and I understand, you know, certainly to be uh, an education, a clinician educator, like in air quotes, or not in air quotes, in, in defined quotes on your job description, um, and uh, to be a leader, it's probably something you are going to need on your CV as you're applying for that job, or if you're if you're looking to, to be in part of that uh, line of work. But for somebody who is interested in that kind of scholarly work, but maybe just wants to dip their toe in it first, just to get a sense of, is this right for them before? for um, laying out dollars and, and signing up to do a master's program. How would people, how would you suggest someone get started to do scholarship in medical education? Similar to what we were just talking about, the analogy to clinical research is find a mentor who can help you do a good job applying adult learning principles and applying best practices when it comes to teaching and or creating a curriculum is find help early and have them advising you along the way. A lot of times education projects emerge because you want to fix a gap in the system or in the you know larger curriculum that doesn't include X, Y, or Z. And so you want to build something that fills that gap. I think a lot of times motivation is just to be creative and come up with something. And as I learned the hard way is if you don't start with understanding the, the real problem and, and doing what we call a needs assessment. You may learn that the needs assessment really isn't there, that maybe they you don't need to fill that gap, or you can fill the gap in an easier way. So I think finding local help, a local mentor, even if they're not in your GI division or in your own division as a trainee, um, finding someone who can help you, who can be a good mentor. And I, there's already been countless uh, examples on Balsound's podcast about what it takes to be a good mentor. That if you find a good mentor and you get some assistance in framing the project well, you can get deep into learning about how to do good education and assess your good education uh, well without necessarily doing it as part of a master's program. But I, I can't say enough about getting help early to design what you're going to do in terms of the actual education, but also the assessment of whether or not the education did anything, get help early and keep them, keep them engaged. I think that's really good advice. And I guess a couple little things I would tack on about, you know, because finding someone local, I, I think it's really important to not get blinders on and, and stick just within your own division, like you mentioned, because some people think, oh, there's no one really in my uh, in my institution who's doing the kind of education research that I'm interested in doing or the idea that I that I think I'm I'm interested in. And first of all, you can absolutely look outside of your institution and make connections you know, through something like Twitter or, or just a cold email, people are really approachable more so than you might think. But also there are lots of people who might be in other areas of health professions work outside of your uh, group. So maybe it's somebody in internal medicine or even orthopedic surgery or family medicine or, or whatever the case may be. There's somebody else at your institution who's doing this. And if you do a quick PubMed search in your institution and education, you could probably find someone to link up with. But I guess the other thing to tack onto what you're saying is this is real research that we're talking about, and it would typically count as your major scholarly project during fellowship if it's done the right way with rigor, with the appropriate supervisor, and uh, et cetera. So that's that's its own motivation to to potentially really invest the the time and effort into doing it. Absolutely, it's super heartening to hear about the spread of acceptance of medical education scholarship as real scholarly activities 
throughout more clinically oriented programs and clinically oriented uh, institutions and advancing your own career in medical education as your scholarly work is becoming much more common, accepted, appreciated. Uh, medical educators are, are appreciated always, and they're getting the recognition in terms of promotion and things like that. And I think as trainees or people who, are, who want to do their scholarly projects as residents or fellows, it seems like it's becoming a lot more mainstream. And, and I think that that's fantastic. As a medical educator myself, I love it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, as someone who is very feels very fortunate to have gone through successful promotion last year, uh, or as of July this year, way to go! Um, uh, leaning mostly on my my education work, I I definitely appreciate that that is accepted and and valid. Yeah, and a lot of times it starts with just a conversation with people you know, and then that gets you to the next person to the next person. And it comes organically with meetings. Uh, and that's how it works. At least it's always worked in people who've come to me or, or I've heard about wanting to do education. They don't necessarily need to do all the research on the computer. They can start with meetings. Um, the computer research is good though. The other thing is NASPGAN has a medical education special interest group and anybody associated with NASPGAN should lean on those resources. There's a big community of medical educators within NASPGAN and, you know, talking about going outside your um, own institution if you need to, or finding out that someone in your institution does medical education through NASPGAN, I think is a, is a great resource too. So kind of moving past, you know, building yourself as a teacher on the bedside, how about curriculum development? Where do we get started? What kind of available resources are there? And for any of us who may be looking to do some curriculum development, where should we, yeah, where should we even start? I think the first place to start is to A, define your question about what you really want to accomplish with your curriculum, because the answer to that can be varied. You could be filling a gap in the existing curriculum. You could be improving on something that seems to be problematic already, or you could be completely open-minded about, you know, what needs to be done. And so you start with what I talked about before, the needs assessment. So anytime you want to do a curricular development project, you have to start by finding out what you really want to improve. And also there's a corollary there where you want to see if you can actually put a measurement on it, whether it's a qualitative description by your learners about what's good and bad about this you know, clinical topic that you want to be teaching about or about, you know, endoscopy teaching or something like that. You want to see if you can understand or quantify or qualify in a measurable way what is lacking, right? You want to see if you can have a needs assessment that tells you what's wrong and in a way that you can then find out later if it got any better, right? And that could be qualitative, people's descriptions, people's recognized areas of de deficiency in their learning, but you can also be quantitative by doing rigorous assessment tools. So it starts with framing your question appropriately and doing a needs assessment that actually makes sense. The next one, the next step is to, like we said before, get some help from it, some people who've done it before you. And that can be can come through the networking we were just talking about before, local people who've done education and curricular development before, even if they don't have, like, they don't publish their curriculum design, you know, efforts, but if they've done a curriculum design project before, then you can learn from them and they can help guide you through the process. There's also resources online like MedEd Portal. 
MedEd Portal is a really uh, fantastic resource for education projects that people have written up in a special way, and then it, it's peer-reviewed, and it's this repository of people's descriptions of their medical education projects, usually small curricula, sometimes large, and you can peruse them. You can really like just look through what people have done before, A, for ideas about how to go about your curriculum, how to go about your teaching modality, and B, just to get a sense of how people went about designing it and understanding what came first, what was your prep work, what was your implementation, how did you assess it. You can kind of see examples of what it takes to have something that proved itself to be good. So MedEd Portal uh, is a fantastic resource. And then you can also read medical education literature. You know, there's Medical Educator, there's Journal of Continuing Education and Health Professions. There's all sorts of different academic medicine journals that you can kind of peruse to say, oh, this is how people went about a education curriculum design, pre and post assessment, things like that. But I think it starts with identifying the right question and then finding some help with people who've gone before you. I'm going to put in a plug for for a book, and I'm actually I'm actually bringing this home tonight for my wife, who's also looking at developing a curriculum, a novel curriculum in her field. But it's curriculum development for medical education, and it's the uh, anyone who works in medical education has heard about the Kearns model of uh, curriculum development, the six step approach to curriculum development, and nothing is uh, there's nothing kind of groundbreaking or confusing about it. It's, it as you read it, you're like, oh, of course, that's the next. Oh, yeah, of course, that makes sense. You know, yeah. Oh, yeah, right. That's the next step. Um, it's very user friendly. So I'll put in a, a plug for for this particular uh, book. Um, and then I, I'm also going to definitely uh, second Danny's recommendation for the MedEd portal, because what's d unique about MedEd portal over just reading the, the medical literature or the medical education literature or health professions education literature is in an article, people summarize their their methods you know, according to character limit or word limit, um, it can be relatively brief, but MedEd Portal is like, you get this zipped file of all of their supporting documents, like every survey they developed, the needs assessment summary, the, you get basically the project that they did in this, in this package, as opposed to just the public sort of finished product can, like Danny was suggesting, can give you almost like a roadmap to follow, which can be really useful. Awesome. We'll definitely check it out. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about, you know, improving teaching skills, building yourself as, as an education leader or preparing yourself to be an education leader. We've talked about some tips to get involved with, with curriculum development projects. Do you have any sort of just general advice to get involved in the realm of education as a trainee? I think it is putting yourself out there and looking for opportunities especially saying yes to lots of little opportunities when it comes to education. And, you know, something comes up, an email goes out, we're looking for people to help out with these small group sessions, physical, physical exam sessions. Uh, we're looking for people who can facilitate this one-off group session. The more you say yes to opportunities, you get some practice, you get uh, to build your own reputation within your institution as an educator. And you get to try out different things. You know, you don't go from doing nothing to being a course director, uh, I hope. <laughs> and the, there's all sorts of little opportunities. And so like if, when it was, when it came to me, I said yes to being able to, um, teach a physical exam to the medical students who are rotating through pediatrics because they wanted to learn pediatric focused physical exam skills. 
that was an hour of my time where I just went and had a blast teaching medical students who were super eager to like examine a baby for the first time and uh, saying yes to teaching in small groups uh, at the medical school in residency where we were, we did breakout groups and I was just one of 12 faculty members after the lecture who went through some cases. And there's a, a lot of support for volunteers like that, where they give you the curriculum, they give you the talking points and things like that. And you just get to lend your own kind of motivation and enthusiasm for the topic and, uh, and have a lot of fun with it. Uh, I said yes to teaching small groups at in fellowship. So I got to teach like a couple of different sessions uh, to the medical students and it was a ton of fun. Those little experiences it fueled the fire for my enthusiasm for medical education, but also taught me like, do I want to do more medical education for medical students or do I want to stick in GME? Do I want to like stick in continuing medical education realms with uh, practicing physicians, that kind of thing. And so just saying yes to small opportunities can kind of hone your skills, get you some experience, get your reputation out there, as well as kind of hone your own motivations and directions as an educator. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense for sure. We'll see what happens with this uh, advanced competency that I am starting to take over. So looking back on your career thus far, what has been the most valuable advice you've received and what advice do you have for our listeners? So my career is not that long so far and I am still figuring it out, which is, it leads to me to say the best two pieces of advice that I think I've heard was say yes to interesting opportunities because you never know what's going to stick. And that's exactly how I got into continuing medical education and education scholarship was I didn't know that I wanted to study primary care constipation education, but I said yes to an opportunity and it became so cool. And I got a lot out of it professionally and personally. And, and it was all because I said yes to a mentor who offered a project. It was very cool. The other piece of advice is say no, no learn, learn when to say no. I will give credit to Michael Rosen, who has spent a lot of his career here in Cincinnati and has just taken a, a fantastic new job as the director of the IBD Center out at Stanford. He gave me some very fantastic career advice into framing opportunities as they come along into good, better, and best, and only saying yes to the better and the best, recognizing that lots of things are going to come your way that might be good opportunities or good uh, projects to say yes to. But being selective to what's better and best has helped me frame, helped me kind of decide what to say yes to as, you know, I've become stretched thin across my various interests. I think that's great advice. I think someone recently said, maybe it was on the podcast, Jason, where they said, every time you say yes, know that you are like saying no to something that may come up in the future. And so to me, that has been really helpful as well. Absolutely. And I think it was Benita Kamath who uh, gave advice about spending a little bit of time defining for yourself who you think you are as a professional. And then when somebody comes with an opportunity, looking at your sort of listed roles that you imagine for yourself and saying, where does this fit in these roles? And if it doesn't fit, then the answer should be no. Yeah. But so, really great advice. For sure. So in closing, do you have any final words for our listeners? Go watch Ted Lasso. <laughs> Let's bring it all back. It's 
a good it is teaching. a salve it is a salve for the soul in these difficult times and it'll also make you laugh indoors hashtag believe <laughs> <laughs> oh that was so fun that was so fun <laughs> well i really appreciate you guys inviting me on i'm yeah. super thrilled to have done this What a great time talking to Dr. Mallon. I can't believe that's the first time I ever met him. Anyway, we really want to thank him for taking time to sit down with us, and we really hope you enjoyed listening as much as we did. And I certainly know, Jason, you were just getting so excited with all these meta topics. <laughs> I can't help it. I, I do. I do. But I, I thought that uh, Danny provided, or Dr. Mallon, provided so many uh, just really practical answers to the question of how can I get involved. And, and I really liked his framing of um, turning that question of how to get involved back to the learner to to get them to think about what is it about education that really stokes their interest and in, in the way that they want to get involved. So I thought that was great. And I like just calling people learners instead of students, because that's kind of cool, because you're going to be a lifelong learner. So you might as well be a learner from the beginning. It's true. I, I learn something every day. Like, how again do I start recording this podcast? <laughs> you should know that by now. Um, <laughs> if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on episodes. And if you liked what you heard today, uh, it would really help us out if you did a, one or more of a few things. First of all, tell somebody about the podcast, share it with a learner, tell it, share it with a colleague, share it with a friend. Um, and also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those, those five star reviews really do help other people who might be interested in this podcast to find it. And then lastly, if you'd like to support our show, consider making a donation to the Naspagan Foundation. Uh, you can get there through our Buzzsprout page, or you can get there through www.naspagan.org or N-A-S-P-G-H-A-N.org. And the money you donate helps support some of the amazing things that the Naspagan Foundation does, including supporting pediatric GI research uh, and public education programs like this podcast. And as always, the discussion, views, and recommendation of the podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and guest and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.